Amen. Good morning. Uh, let me see a show of hands, and hang on just for a moment, okay? Let me, let me name a few different groups of people before I see a show of hands. But if you're here this morning and you are in need of a touch of God because you can identify a major or minor piece of brokenness in your life and you're in need of a touch of God to bring restoration, and in just a moment I want you to raise your hand. If you are aware of a relative who is in need of a touch of God because there was so much brokenness in their life they're struggling to see, or if you can identify a neighbor or a coworker who you know they are in need of a touch of God because there is some brokenness in their life and they're in need of redemption. Now, if, if you fit any of those, can you just raise your hand where you are, a show of hands. All right, so we're in a good place this morning, right? That we're in need of the redemption and the restoration and the work of God. I need you to know that what I want for my boys is what I want for you and what I want for this church. Uh, what I want for their spiritual development is what I want for all of you, and what I want for all of you is what I want for my boys. Now, one thing is we want our boys to understand the power of Scripture. So some of you heard me tell this story the other day, but uh, my boys just came out of sun, uh, spring break last week, and Sunday night was hard getting them to go to bed. Have you ever had that problem if you have kids or even when you were a kid? And uh, true, my oldest, who's eight, was struggling going to bed. It was over an hour past his bedtime, and uh, he came in the room, and I said, dude, go back to your room, pick up your Bible, and I want you to read Psalm chapter 3, verse 5. Would you, I mean, Psalm 3, 5, do you have it up on the screen, if we could go there? Uh, Psalm 3, 5, I lie down and sleep, I awake again, for the Lord sustains me. This is a verse I pray over many of you often, that there is a God who watches over us while we rest. He came back in the room a moment later, and he said, Dad, that didn't really make sense. And I said, what do you mean it didn't make sense? And he said, well, is Psalm and Song of Solomon the same thing? <laughs> All right? And this is where I played it off. I was really cool about it. And I was like, man, just go back. Song of Solomon says this, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the wild doves, do not stir up or awaken love until it is ready. All right? <laughs> And I made some of you nervous because you're like me in the moment. I was like, what does Song of Solomon 3.5 say? And uh, we're just glad it wasn't chapter 4 or chapter 5 of Song of Solomon, right? <clears throat> More than our boys knowing the Bible, we want our boys to know the God of the Bible. And we want our boys, we talk to them all the time about the Easter story and about the resurrection because I think everything hinges on Jesus coming out of the grave. Everything hinges on Jesus conquering the grave. The, a new power was unleashed upon the world. It was a power to remake what has been broken, to heal diseases, to restore whatever has been lost. So today I'm launching a new series for 10 weeks. We're going to be talking about the power of the resurrection and what it means for us. And I want to do this in a way, I'm going to have a blog that comes out in the next couple of days. I'm just going to outline kind of the, the passages in the New Testament we're going to be studying and we're going to dive into together because uh, I want you to read some of those places ahead of time. Some of these sermons are going to go along with the 901 offering because some of the ways Paul talks about resurrection, he was talking to a certain context. So how Paul talked about the power of the resurrection to the church in Corinth was a little different than the church in Rome, which is a little different than the church in Colossae, because he's talking to people who had a context and issues they were struggling with. And the same is true for us living in Memphis and Shelby County, and maybe some of you, maybe Tipton County, wherever you come from, we're aware of the challenges we face. And I think it's important that we put on the lens of the resurrection because 
If it's the best news for the world, what does it mean for whatever context we're called to love and serve in? 1 Corinthians 15, I'm going to be in this in a few weeks. In 1 Corinthians 15, one of the best chapters in all the Bible about the resurrection. And what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 13 and 14, is that if Jesus didn't come out of the grave, our preaching is meaningless. Like life and your message and whatever proclamation comes from your life means nothing if Jesus didn't come out of the grave. And I want to stand on that truth over the next 10 weeks as I stand up in front of you that what Jesus what God did for Jesus, he wants to do for us. Now, my boy N.T. Wright, one of the best scholars in the world, he's not really my boy, I've never met him, but he is my boy, and I love this dude. Here's what he says. Jesus came to believe that the only way one could defeat death itself and thereby launch the new creation for which Israel and the world had longed was to take on death itself. Like David taking on Goliath in mortal combat, trusting that Israel's God, the creator of life itself, wanted able victory to be won. And I love that. Jesus stepped into the very heart of death to release it of all of its poison and all the heartache it can cause. He stepped into it. Now, I want us to be really careful um, because sometimes when we talk about the resurrection, we may say something like this. The resurrection happens at the end of the Gospels. And, And it's true. At the end of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you can read accounts of the resurrection, all four of them in that way. But I just want us to be really careful that the resurrection may be at the end of the Gospels, but the resurrection is not at the end of the Gospel. It's at the beginning of the Gospel. That the Gospel is launched because the tomb is empty. The Gospel is launched because Jesus conquered the grave and then He set this group of people, this small group, and He unleashed them on the world to spread that news. Easter holds out hope that death and destruction can be reversed, that there is nothing that is irreversible for God. Now, I don't know exactly what redemption is going to look like for some of you, because redemption for you may not mean that marriages go back to what they used to be, or certain relationships go back to the exact way they used to be. But, but when it comes to your heart and your life and having meaning and purpose, there's nothing God can't redeem. There's not a heart He cannot restore. And what God did in the graveyard 2,000 years ago, God can repeat. So open your Bibles to Luke chapter 24. It's where we're going to be today. Uh, Because there are people that when Jesus rose from the dead, there were his followers and disciples who just didn't believe it. Like it was so crazy for the, even though they heard Jesus talk about the resurrection, he was going to die and come out of the grave three days later. It was so hard for him to believe it. Now Luke 24 doesn't talk about Thomas. Um, But most of us know who Thomas the doubter. Some of us call him Doubting Thomas. Now, you may be in this room, and I know there are people here (coughs) who know the Bible so well. Like, Bible trivia is fun for you. And I could start a verse, and you could end it, and you know the 66 books of the Bible. And and I've, I've grown to love the kind of church God is forming here, because I also know there's some of you right now, and you're like, what? I heard you mention Thomas. I don't really know who Thomas is. And you wouldn't know where to go to find this story of Doubting Thomas. And I think it's awesome. All right? And, and I want people to be in their Bible and to know their Bible and to know how to understand it and practice it. But if you're here today and you don't know how to navigate your way to find a story about Thomas, that's all right. All right? I'm just, I'm glad you're here. And, and I hope that your knowledge of God and of the Bible and what God's doing in the world continues to grow in your life and that you continue to seek for that. Thomas was this guy who had walked with Jesus for over three years. <clears throat> and, and when Jesus rose from the dead, he wasn't even with the disciples when Jesus appeared to him. Now, many people think the reason that is, is because Thomas had gone to, back to some other way of life. Like he, 
<laughs> was back to his former way. And we aren't really sure where Thomas went. We just know he wasn't with the disciples. Now, some people think that Thomas went back to the Qumran community, not the Quran, the Qumran. It was a group of people who studied Scripture, and they knew the Scriptures of God, and they knew how the story of God unfolded. But here was the problem with a lot of those people. They knew, how, they knew Scripture. They could speak about it. They could talk about it, but they didn't know how to live it out. They didn't know how to apply it and practice it. Now, for any group of Christians, this can become a major problem if what we care about is information, yet we don't care about how it applies and how we live it out in the world. This, can, this has become a major problem in, with Christianity in America and in the Western world. Is we can know Scripture, but we don't know how to apply it. Come back to this community where they knew Scripture but they didn't really know how to apply it. But in Luke 24, uh, there's this story, and here's how it goes. Verse 36 is where I want to begin. While they were talking about this, Jesus himself, and they were talking about these people who had encountered Jesus on the walk to Emmaus, the road to Emmaus. So these people hadn't seen Jesus yet. And here's what happens. While they were talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them. Jesus appeared and said to them, peace be with you. And they were startled and terrified and thought that they were seeing a ghost. And he said to them, why are you frightened? And I stop right there because if you were in that room, would you not be frightened too? Jesus, I'm frightened because one moment ago you weren't standing there and now you're standing there. You didn't even walk through the door. You didn't knock. You just appeared. Like three days ago you were dead and now you're alive. Five seconds ago, you weren't in this room, and now all of a sudden, you are here. There's reason to be afraid. Jesus says, why are you frightened, and why do, you, why do doubts arise in your heart? Look at my hands. Look at my feet. See that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a ghost doesn't have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while in their joy, they were disbelieving and still wondering, and I love how all that goes together, because I live in this place sometimes, enjoy they're disbelieving and they're wondering. Jesus said to them, have you, do you have anything to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish. Now in the Greek, it's fried fish with hush puppies, all right? Just trust me on this, all right? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and he ate it in their presence. I love this. And I want you to love it too. And here's why, okay? There was this group of people, uh, this, this way of thinking called Gnosticism that started shortly after Jesus rose from the dead. And what Gnostics wanted to convince people is that Jesus had a spiritual body but not a physical body. And, and for 2,000 years, there are people who've tried to disprove that the resurrection of Jesus didn't happen. And some of the ways they go about that is they want to claim that the followers of Jesus, they were uneducated, which we know that. They were just like an ordinary man. There was nothing special about them. And that they were really gullible because apparently these guys believe ghost stories. Like some of you have that crazy uncle who's probably a drunk and he believes that he's made friends with aliens somewhere like on a farm in Arkansas or Kentucky or Tennessee just so I can throw all the states in there, all right? And here are these, apparently these guys who believe in ghost stories, like they've, that they've seen Jesus, or people believe well, there, it's just a conspiracy. Like the followers of Jesus came together, and after he died, they just formed this story. But you, it, that, that doesn't play out very well, because if you form a conspiracy, and some of you tried to do this before, like you did something, and you knew you were, it was wrong, and the word may get out, so you wanted all the other people to be on the same page about the story you're going to tell other people. 
And if you have a conspiracy, everyone else has to be on the same page about all the facts. And that doesn't happen with the apostles. It's not that they were gullible. And it, it's not that they just believed ghost stories. They, they encountered Jesus. And 2,000 years later, there are people who still try to prove that the resurrection didn't happen. And the stories I love is that 2,000 years later, there are still people who set out to prove it didn't happen, and they come away believing that it did. Isn't that cool? 2,000 years later, the impact of the resurrection of Jesus. Now, in Luke 24, there's movement and there's momentum about Jesus appearing to people. Uh, In all four Gospels, the first witnesses of the resurrection are women. I, I don't think you can skip over that. It was a time and a place where women were not allowed to testify in courts. Like they couldn't stand up in a court and bear witness or bear testimony. Yet for all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the first witnesses, the first people to testify that Jesus rose from the dead were women, not men. It's women who go and tell the apostles, the disciples, they've encountered God, they've encountered Jesus, they know he's alive. And right after that, you have this walk to Emmaus. So so Jesus reveals himself to a couple of guys, and then he's in this room, this in a room with people, and he's revealing himself to his apostles. So, and then he eats fish. I mean, Jesus is trying everything he can. Look, look at the holes in my hands. And then Jesus would open up scripture to reveal to them, look, all the prophecies that have come true. Prophecies have come true. And, and not, don't just believe it in your head. Look at the holes. T- touch my hands. Give me some fish to eat. I need you to believe that I'm alive. Now, Now, here's where, uh, and I want you to listen to me carefully because I don't want you to call me a heretic. There are times where I read, like, the story of the resurrection, and I think to myself, man, if God would just put me in charge of marketing strategies back in those days, I think I could have got the word out much better. Hang on, okay, (laughs) because I don't want you to write me off as a heretic. When Jesus rose from the dead, there were no angels, no clouds, no stars in the sky, no kings coming from faraway lands to bring gifts. I think if there would have been a marketing strategy for the resurrection like there was for the birth of Jesus, it would have gone better. I mean, for the birth of Jesus, I mean, look, it was a really cool birth. I mean, it was a miracle, right? Virgin Mary, Jesus came into the world. But but at that point, like, there are shepherds who follow, right, the sign of God in the sky. Kings come from faraway places. The angels are seen to be rejoicing. But when you have the resurrection... There are no no stars. You don't even read about like angels rejoicing in heaven. You don't see stars in the sky. You don't have kings and all these wise people coming with gifts. In fact, there's not one account in all the Gospels of Jesus encountering a non-believer after he rose from the dead. A non-believer being someone who never in their life believed he was the Messiah. Jesus revealed himself when he rose from the dead. He revealed himself in small places, out in rural, like in the middle of nowhere. He revealed himself in the living rooms, over private dinners, out on a beach with some with this fishermen who knew who he was. Like, why did Jesus not come out of the grave and make a bigger deal out of it? And this is where, like, when Jesus rose from the dead, if I were God's marketing strategy, a selfie stick would have been, like, right there on the bed where he woke up, you know? Like, like just start taking pictures and get on Periscope so that all these other rulers could see you. Like, be like, uh, I'm back, you know? Like, there's so many things you could have done with some social media strategy, but it didn't work out that way. And God's ways are much better than my ways, right? And they're much better than yours. Because I think what God was doing through Jesus and through this small little group of people 
that Jesus kept revealing himself in small places, indoors, out in the middle of nowhere, is Jesus wanted this small group of people to encounter him in a way where there was undeniable thinking. I mean, for them, it was undeniable. Jesus rose from the dead. So Jesus spent 40 days just pouring his life into this small little group of people, convincing them that he was alive and that his mission was real. And what ended up happening is they came to believe that the resurrection of Jesus, the Easter Sunday, was more than a moment to celebrate. It was a movement that had been launched. And 2,000 years later, we're recipients of this. So Jesus began to appear, and I want you to see what happens next. He begins to commission. It's almost like there's fish in his mouth in verse 43. He begins speaking in verse 44. Jesus was polite. He wasn't talking with his mouth open. But in verse 44, it says he just ate fish. And then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, and notice this, this is written that the Messiah is to suffer and to rise from the dead on the third day. And that repentance and forgiveness of sins is to be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. And see, I am sending upon you what my father promised, so stay here in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. Let me point out just a few things in this, all right? Because Jesus goes from appearing to them to commissioning them, and in just a moment, he's going to ascend before them. And as he commissions them, what he reminds them of as he opens up the scriptures is here's the rhythm, here's the paradigm. There's death, there's life, there's proclamation. This is still the Jesus rhythm. You lay down your life, God raised you to life, and what he does in you spreads throughout the world. Right? There's death, there's life, there's the spreading of the news, there's proclamation. There, for Jesus, it wasn't just proclamation, it was show and tell kind of proclamation. It was, I want to convince your mind, yet I'm also right here in front of you, letting you know that this is true. They became witnesses to what Jesus had done. So the people who start preaching the first messages, they were witnesses. They're testifying to what they saw with their eyes, what they heard with their ears. Now for us, we testify about their testimony, and we also testify about how God reveals himself in our own lives. Isn't that cool? I mean, 2,000 years later, we testify about what they have done, yet we also testify about how we are encountering God in the here and now. And this may come in ways that like there are times where God in, encounters people today and it sends a like they are just so fully aware of God's abiding presence. We had a someone who came forward recently a few weeks ago and as the she, uh, the shepherds of this church laid hands on him and prayed, he said he felt the peace of God start from his head and go all the way down to his feet. Like I know people who have these stories of encountering God and maybe you don't have some story of some tingly feeling coming into your life. Yet, yet God is here to help us understand the testimony that was true 2,000 years ago, yet he also gives us a testimony of our own, of how God is meeting us in our life. Now, here, let, me, let me show you something, okay? Because here Jesus also promises that there's, there's a gift coming to them, a promise from on high. The three writers in the New Testament who talk the most about the Holy Spirit are John, Paul, and Luke. Yet, yet they do it a little differently. All right, for John, when he talks about the Holy Spirit, uh, what John wanted people to see is that the Holy Spirit is an advocate, the Holy Spirit is a teacher, and the Holy Spirit is a comforter. So the Holy Spirit 
serves the world to point people to Jesus, to teach and to comfort. Who doesn't want that, right? Now, Paul, when he talks about the Holy Spirit, for the most part, for Paul, the Holy Spirit, um, uh, the Holy Spirit is about new life, and the Holy Spirit equips us for ministry and for service. So, so the Spirit of God is at work in this world to bring new life, fresh life, to breathe life into us, and to equip us with gifts for service. Now, for Luke, most of the time, and when he talks about the Spirit, not all the time, but most of the time, for Luke, the Spirit of God is what energizes the church for its mission. All right, and, and in my opinion, Luke's understanding of the Holy Spirit is the hardest one for the church to get. I think we want the Spirit to be our comforter and to teach us about the Bible. We want the Spirit to bring new life. We want to be gifted, yet when the Spirit of God begins moving us out of whatever comfort area we're in into an area of the unknown is where it can get really dicey, right? And the Spirit of God was calling the church to enter into the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire to be ambassadors for the kingdom of God. Uh, my friend uh, Jeremy Courtney was here uh, about a year and a half ago. Jeremy Courtney lives in Iraq, serves in Iraq. That's where he's raising his family. They perform heart surgeries for small children. They're invested in some other things in Iraq now. And he had a picture I saw just recently. Will you show this? This is Jeremy standing in a Christian church in Iraq that had just been destroyed by ISIS. And he's standing in this church declaring that what ISIS does is not destroying the movement of God in the world. That Jesus continues to advance and the good news is going to be preached and the good news is going to be lived. Now the Holy Spirit of God, I don't think the Holy Spirit is coming upon this church and maybe not coming upon you to relocate, to go raise your family in Iraq. Now, I think the Spirit of God is working in some of you to do things that you could never have asked or imagined and we need to be obedient to that. But I what I want you to take away just from a picture of Jeremy is, is if Jeremy and his family can do that, if there are families who can move out of a context and go into a dangerous place, like what is stopping you from taking cookies to a neighbor to build a relationship? Or from stepping across a hallway at work to be obedient to God as you try to pour some love and grace and maybe words of Jesus into the life of someone? Like what is stopping us? from being faithful right here in our context. Uh, so Jesus is encountering them, commissioning them. And then what he says is, I want you to go to Jerusalem and stay there until the Holy Spirit comes. And these are people who at this point, I think they were fired up and they're like, dude, give us a mission and we're gonna go. We're ready to die for you. We believe this is real. And Jesus says, oh, I want you to just stay. Like, stay still until the Spirit of God comes. And listen to what happens after that. Verse 50, Jesus led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he was blessing them, he withdrew from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they were continually in the temple blessing God. Let me give you three things about the ascension of Jesus that I think are very important. Now, N.T. Wright has a dozen things about the ascension. I've tried to boil it down to three because it's a good church number, right? <clears throat> First thing about the ascension, it's on the screen, write it down, take a picture in just a moment, let all three get up there. Heaven and earth are not that far, that far apart. 
I think what is really helpful for us when we understand why did Jesus lift up and not just stay down, this is not an escape plan for Jesus. This wasn't that Jesus was done with everything down on the earth, so now he's floating away, and then one day you're going to float away to be with him too. What I've tried to convince you over the last few years in some of my preaching in a book I wrote is I want people to understand that heaven and earth are closer than we may believe. It's not that heaven and earth are millions of miles away, and Jesus went way over to heaven, so make a decision to, be, to confess Jesus as Lord and be baptized, so one day you can float away and go way over there to heaven too. Jesus did ascend into the heavens, but this wasn't an escape plan. The way I want people to think about heaven and earth is that heaven uh, is the place where Jesus reigns, but it's like heaven and earth are side by side, like two rooms in a house, and there's a connecting door where the blessings of God are still flowing from heaven into earth, and people are moving from earth to heaven. Jesus taught us to pray for the reality of heaven to ring true in this earth, for God to bring forth his kingdom just as it is in heaven. So it's not an escape plan. Number two, heaven is where, uh, it's like heaven, it's, it's like the CEO office. It is where Jesus reigns. It's the CEO office. Uh, blessings and uh, commands are given. Now, where I really see this coming true is in Ephesians 4, verse 9 and 10. And here's how Paul writes about the uh, Here's how Paul writes about the ascension of Jesus. When, when it says he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth? And he who descended is the same one who ascended far above the heavens. And look at this last line. So that he might fill all things. Right? Jesus ascended to position himself in a place where he could rain down blessings upon the world. Acts 2.33, and I know sometimes when we read Acts 2, only a verse or two come to mind. In Acts 2.33, what it declares is this, that Jesus was raised up into the heavens where he is sitting at the right hand of God, and it was there that the Father gave Jesus. Jesus received the promise of the Holy Spirit and then poured out the Spirit upon the church. So Jesus went to the right hand of God, received the promise of the Holy Spirit, and then sent the Spirit and poured out the Spirit upon the church. The Spirit of God humbles himself every day to serve Jesus, lift up Jesus, exalt Jesus, point people to Jesus. But it's a gift, it's a gift that flows straight from Jesus. His ascension was not to escape, but to position himself in a place where he is reigning over all things. Number three. It is an illustration of the king. All right. Uh, Augustus, one of the emperors, his dad was Julius Caesar. And Augustus told a story that would have been told all over the Roman Empire that when Julius Caesar died, Augustus claimed that his father ascended and lifted up into the clouds. And it was then that they could declare Julius Caesar as this god. Now, I don't, I'm not suggesting that Jesus' ascension was simply God's way of saying that what Caesar did, Jesus did. God is way more creative. There's way more going on with the ascension. But I think there is something about the ascension of Jesus that is declaring to his followers that Jesus is king. Jesus is ruler. Jesus reigns. Like when you lift up someone in victory and you put them on your shoulders, all right? Like, like you're giving some parade. Jesus ascends. And it is this declaration to all of his followers that Jesus has been installed as the permanent king forever. And part of that is that Jesus radically upstages Caesar because Caesar ruled with the fist. 
Jesus ruled with blessings. Did you notice how many times blessing shows up there? He blessed them. As Jesus was ascending, the last thing he was doing was blessing them. When you bless people, you can read about it in the Old Testament even day. When you bless people, it's something about your posture that is sending forth a blessing. It's something about words from your mouth that are sending forth a blessing. He blessed them. And I can only imagine the blessing Jesus spoke over them, a blessing of power, a blessing of God is with you always, this blessing to let them know they're not alone. Because when Jesus did his sin, you don't see the apostles, you don't see the disciples sitting around saying, where are you going? What are we going to do? It says with great joy. They went into Jerusalem. It wasn't don't leave. It was they remember Jesus saying, it's better for me to go and for the Spirit of God to come. And they go into Jerusalem with great joy because they understood what their mission was. And I think there's some in here today who have, because of circumstances in in your life, or maybe the way you were taught God, you don't think you have ever heard a blessing of God flow into your life. And I think today Jesus wants to bless this church and bless the church. To know that he doesn't just want you to believe in him, he wants you to know that he believes in you. That Jesus is still reaching out his hand and blessing this world, blessing us with his presence, inviting us, imploring us to leave lives of sin, to cling to God because he is the source of true fulfillment. And some of us are at a point where we can sing songs about running into the arms of God and you're like, man, I've never, I'm just not at a point where I'm running for God or running with God. Today, maybe the blessing of God is coming into your life just asking you to make a step. One step to freedom. One step to new life. One step closer to God's heart. When, when Noah, my youngest son, he's six now, when he first started to walk, I would stand behind him and he would put both of his hands around my fingers and I would just, you know, walk like this. And then sometimes Noah would trip over his feet and he would fall. And when he would do that, I didn't start yelling at him like, a calf can walk before its first sleep, you know? It's been seven months. What are you doing? It's, I would pick him back up, and we would keep walking. And some of you are at a point where it's like, man, I don't even know how to walk with God. Today, invitation of God's asking you, we just take a step, a step closer to God, a step in the ways of Jesus. If you're praying this morning for the shepherds, will you go ahead and get in your place to receive people? Church, we have pockets all over this room for prayer. Whatever it is you may need, it may not be something you need to declare to this whole church. It may be something that you just need one person to pray with you. There's some release in your life. Maybe it's someone else you're asking for a touch of God to come into their life. So we have, we have women who are gathered throughout this room. We have shepherds in the front. If there's something you want to bring before this entire church for prayer, I see Kelly up here as one of our shepherds to receive you. One of the saddest stories I've read yes, uh, recently is my, my friend Scott McKnight was writing a book recently, and he said that he, he teaches at his college, and he had this college student that came in his office one day, and the college student said, I've been in church all my life, yet today in your class is the first time I've heard about Jesus. I don't just want to be a church person. I want to love Jesus. And I want us to be that church too that we're helping each other love Jesus, know Jesus, walk to Jesus. So let's stand up and let's declare that what God did over the grave, He can do for us. And if God can do that, what can our God not do? Let's sing this song about how able our God is.
He is able.